Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Shattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her series of discussions with Michael Trout with part one of their examination of his sixth video, They Took My Parents Away, Little Ones Affected by Incarceration Speak. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. Part two will be released on February 25th. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. So I would like to share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. Sought after speaker and trainer Karen Doyle Buckwalter and trauma-informed school specialist Josh Carlson are coming together for a one-day workshop you don't want to miss. May 1st in Denver, Colorado, Lessons from the Toughest Kids features practical, evidence-based strategies for working with challenging children and adolescents. You'll experience engaging lectures, discussions, and role play with proven strategies from over 25 years of working with some of the nation's most complex children. Go beyond theory and book knowledge with Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson, May 1st in Denver, Colorado. Tickets are on sale now. Visit tkcchattock.org or find us on Facebook.
Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter, your host uh, from here at Chaddock, and we are continuing our series with Michael Trout. Hello, Michael. Morning. Today, we are going to talk about your most recent project, and now as technology has advanced, this is a download, uh, not not having actual uh, DVDs um, as are, are, are needed as much anymore. But this one is called, They Took My Parent Away, Little Ones Affected by Incarceration Speak. And so, Michael, could you just start out giving us a little background here on where this whole idea came from to do this and why you thought it was important? Well, the global idea of finding a way to help children speak and be heard uh, is consistent through almost all of my films and was continued here. Uh, so on the, on the download, on the CD, we hear the voices of children, but the topic came about um, a lot out of my own ignorance. I happened to uh, be drawn into and eventually volunteering at a women's prison here in Illinois, uh, where babies are born if the mothers are pregnant um, and are allowed to stay for up to two years for a very select number of moms and babies and other babies are allowed to come there if they weren't born there and live with their moms for up to two years. And finally, other children are allowed to visit uh, on an almost unlimited basis. Again, for that's for this very tiny select number of women prisoners uh, in this prison. So I, I had spoken there and then I got pulled into sitting with some of the moms and then I got really caught and then I volunteered and several years later, I had this uh, really messy track record of going down to sit with these moms uh, pretty regularly. And I, I realized then and only then, not only A, how little I knew about any of this, but B, how I had, just like everybody else in the world pretty much, ignored babies and young children that are affected by incarceration. I knew almost nothing about their experience. I could piece some things together in my imagination, but I didn't really know. And so I came to know, not only by watching the babies on the unit, uh, but interviewing their mothers, and then finally beginning to do my my own research, uh, which was a bit of a problem because it turns out almost nobody else knows anything about babies of incarceration either, or didn't at the time. So very, very little was written about them. So I just had to piece things together and decided to do it um, not, not in a researchy way for this film, but rather simply picking five of my favorite stories that I heard at the prison uh, or, or saw myself and putting them together in a coherent way uh, and having little children actually speak the story of their one part of their experience. Yes, yes. So um, 
you you talk about um, in in the booklet just to remind listeners you have sort of a, a an overall little booklet that comes with uh, each of your your uh, CDs and films, but I want to share some startling statistics that that are in uh, some of the information that went along with this project. Between 1985 and 2015, the number of people incarcerated in the U.S., most of them parents, skyrocketed by more than 500%. The number of women incarcerated in the U.S. during this period increased by 832%. Between 1.4 and 5 million U.S. children have a parent in jail or prison. Oddly, the data are elusive, giving credibility to the notion that these are indeed the invisible children, you have in quotes. 30 to 50% of children with an incarcerated parent will themselves be incarcerated one day. And 2,000 babies are born in U.S. prisons every year. That just blew me away because when you first uh, came out with this uh, project, I thought, well, maybe that's a little bit of an obscure topic if you're not working maybe in like the child welfare system. Um, But when you hear those statistics, it's just dumbfounding. It is indeed, and I didn't put in the total number of parents in prison because it changes so much. But we're we're we've been hovering between 2.2 and 2.5 million people in prison in America uh, these days for the last 20 years or so, and that's not going down much. Um, so the the sheer number of babies and young children that are involved and affected is really pretty astounding. Yes. And I know, Michael, you wanted to be clear in saying that this is not necessarily, a, a, a the point of this is not about the justice system or how many people should be in prison or how many people are or not. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I, I am I am completely ignorant about those matters, by which I mean to say I'm not really qualified, I don't feel, to speak about the politics of it, and so I just stay out of all of that. But, but my point in bringing out the film was to suggest that it really doesn't matter what your politics are or what your beliefs are about child welfare or adult welfare or anything. Nobody can get around the fact that a whole bunch of babies and young children are at home, defined one way or another. Often home is defined as living with grandma for eight years or 22 years or 10 months while my mom and or my dad are in prison. Uh, These children are at home and they are suffering. They are children of loss and often, not always, but often they are also children of trauma sometimes related to the original arrest, uh, which can, as it turns out, constitute a a trauma, even for a prenate, much less for a very young child. Um, So these invisible kids deserve our attention no matter what we think 
about who ought to be locked up or who ought not to be locked up. Yes, this whatever position you have politically or otherwise does not change the numbers <laughs> of children who are impacted by this. And now I would imagine some listeners might be thinking prenates. What do you, what do you mean? What, what could be the impact there? Could you share a little more about that? Sure. Um, in part, that awareness is driven by the advances in um, uh, particularly in neurology, in neurology in the last few years, we understand now that, for example, let's just say that it's 11 o'clock at night, mom is seven months pregnant, mom and dad are sitting home watching TV, and some guys, big guys, burly guys in blue uniforms, bust down the door, drag dad off, mom is screaming, the other children in the family are screaming, and the, the seven-month-old fetus um, inside is, as it turns out, very much in the room with everybody else. We used to think that wasn't the case. Now we know it is the case. That mom's endocrine system and mom's neurology are changing the endocrine system and the neurology of the baby inside her. Maybe in ways that won't last. Maybe it won't be significant. Maybe it's just a momentary upset. Maybe it's no more than mom uh, having that same seven-month fetus inside her and almost having a car accident and slamming on the brakes and screaming. Maybe it's nothing more than that. On the other hand, maybe it is more than that. As I was doing the research for a, a book chapter that came out after this film, the book came out after this film did, one of the things I was interested to, to discover and try to make a particular point of is that trauma is not a, an event that happens in just in time, in a particular moment in time for children of incarceration. It's, it may be that, for example, all the circumstances around the arrest of daddy that night at 11 o'clock, how much, who was drinking or not, who was using drugs or not, how much change and moving around was were the other children in the ex family experiencing? How well was mom eating? Who was smoking? All of those things often play a part in, the f in family life before or after or even during the arrest, and they affect the child of incarceration. So it's not just having a mom or a dad in, in prison that is such a big deal, it's that plus all the other things that happen to families uh, around that, which is why, I, I should add, we know that some children of incarceration grow up to be very healthy, happy adults. And those are people for whom the imprisonment of a parent was a single event in time. The rest of their family was fairly sturdy they got good substitute care during the time a parent was in prison. The whole family did not blow up. Nobody started drinking. Uh, um, everybody was not always upset. And a child under those circumstances may not experience incarceration of a parent as a trauma, merely as an upsetting or sorrowful event, which is very different from trauma. Yes.
You know, as you're talking about this, it's um, when you were talking about, you know, that the actual coming to take someone to be incarcerated and the impact on everybody, it's so upsetting to envision and think about. I have such a feeling inside of me of not wanting to talk about it and think about it. I, I keep thinking of the Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth. Like, wow, it's easier to just not think about this. It's really horrifying to think about. Just talking about it is, I, I can just feel um, my anxiety rising as we talk about it. We have such an avoidance of the truth of this and then I'm thinking, yeah, we have as as a grown up on the outside looking in. I have the luxury of avoiding, but not so much with the children. Well, you're in good company um, because almost everybody involved wants to avoid, and for perfectly understandable reasons. The parent who is incarcerated wants to avoid because he or she does not want to feel as if on top of everything else they screwed up by getting themselves in prison, they've also screwed up their children. And so parents tell me, and I saw it on the unit at the, at the prison where I spent so much time, that they could be in prison for years and years and it never particularly dawned on them that when they finally get out and go to pick up the children, they won't be the same. That, that was a shock to the mothers. And we sat in group for hours and hours and hours, my trying to explain this. No, this, who describe the child when you left. Now, let me tell you something about the child you're gonna meet. In fact, one of the, one of the um, stories I put together for this film, um, I think the guy's name is, was, uh, the child's name was Maddie. And I, I put together some words that I thought represented her experience as I understand it. And she simply says, Somebody just walked into my grandma's house and said she was my mother. I don't know her. I sort of remember seeing this lady one time at her college. And there I'm referring to my astonishment at how many, particularly uh, women in prison, more than men, uh, have the word passed on to their home community and have the word passed on often through grandma to the children that mama is away at college. So the child says, I sort of remember seeing this lady one time at her college, but I don't know what she means by telling me she's my mother and that I'm going to live with her now. By the way, I am never going to go to one of those college places. They make you wear weird clothes that are orange and they lock you in and everybody's sad and some of the people have guns. So who is she really? Why is she making me sit on her lap? Grandpa said I shouldn't sit on anybody's lap unless they're family and she's not. Is she? He goes wow. on. He goes on to muse about what he's supposed to do. That comes from a mom who, who told me that almost that exact story when she walked in the door. Uh, her oldest was about 18 and her youngest was about 12 and she'd been away for a decade. 
a decade. Yeah, and she walked in the door completely unprepared, thought she would just walk in. They would say, Mama, and run up into her arms and hug her and say, we're so glad to see you. But they weren't. In fact, the oldest one cursed, used a curse word to say, who are you? Wow. And so for the mothers, there's this tendency to almost cope with this as their time standing still. And they will just go back and be right back into the the family system and back into their roles as parents. and And how's this? The shock of that sometimes gets moms to turn back to drugs again. Mm. About the last thing she needs. And it drives a wedge often between the incarcerated mom when she's released and her mom, who may have been taking care of the kids for these years and has therefore established a bond with them. And the kids may turn away from their biological mom and run to their psychological mom at the uh, moment of reunion. And so biological mom is furious at her mom for taking my kids away from me. It's almost as though there could not be a more efficient, effective setup for the formerly incarcerated individual to go back to whatever led to the incarceration. Exactly right. Wow. Wow. So what about, um, I know we're going to talk some more about some of the, the other children's stories in here, but something that does come to mind is it, it came up so many times over the years when, as I was a therapist in foster care and within the child welfare system, well, the visits, do we, do we take the children to visit their parents in prison or do we make up stories? Do we, do we pretend they're at college? You know, and I'm sure it was not, unheard of that the children were told the parents were dead yep so what about children visit visiting incarcerated parents there are some people that hopefully not in in our line of work but perhaps some that would say oh no you should never take them there they shouldn't know that's happening they shouldn't know that's going on and we'll just make up a false narrative that will impose on on the situation what What general thoughts do you have about that? Oh, my general thoughts are miserably unhelpful uh, because when when asked, and I often am, is it good for kids to to visit their parents in prison? I say, no, of course not. It's a terrible place for kids to go and visit. It's a terrible place for kids to be. The only thing worse is not. (laughs) And there we are. There is no right answer. No. If you spend, as I have, so many hours in the lobby watching families come in, be frisked by some uh, person with a uniform, have to take a lot of stuff out of their pocket and take their shoes off and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait wait in the lobby to visit their parent, you get the idea right off that this is a crappy day for these children. Yes. And if you add everything else in that's going to happen that day, uh, people are going to cry, people are going to yell, there may be loud noises. uh, As they approach the visiting room, they may see a fight down one hall. Um, 
none of it is is good it's not a place where little kids should be the only thing is to not be there is maybe worse yes well and then there's always and this is true for a lot of things with children and so it's a general um maybe has more general applicability then there's always the idea well they act out when they come home so then that means we shouldn't do that anymore which is not necessarily a good conclusion maybe 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 it means that but Maybe it means they're just having a, a normal reaction to something so hard and sad. A couple of years ago, I was walking down the street with my oldest son and uh, a little girl that he was helping to take care of, kind of being a surrogate father for. She was living uh, in his home with his her mother, whose boyfriend is in prison and the father of the, the little child and i forgot her age at the time but she wasn't more than maybe three or four and the mother asked me this question should i take her to visit and she said over and over uh she doesn't know she has a father and she doesn't know he's in prison and she's never asked to go visit him so we're walking down the street my son and this little girl and uh, my son and I are talking about this issue of, of what's good for children and so on, not even noticing that she had stopped, withdrawn her hand from both of our hands. We were all walking together, three, three abreast, and she was crying. And I stopped and bent down and said to her, we're talking about things that are very important to you, aren't we, sweetheart? And when we got home, I took her mother aside and said, you know, you told me she doesn't know her father and she knows nothing about prison or any of this stuff. But I gotta tell you, I think she does. Yes. Here's how she reacted when she just overheard something. Mm. I'm convinced that most kids know about their the, the situation of incarceration much more than we imagine that they do yes i i, I think you're you're certainly right there as do they about many situations we assume yeah. that are just oh you know that's going over their head or they don't that, that doesn't affect them they don't know about it or whatever so Which yeah which makes us grown-ups look pretty foolish when we pretend that they don't and we work hard to whisper and keep the information from them. As if, first of all, they don't have consciousness, or even if you don't buy any of the rest of it about consciousness, as if they're not going to walk into kindergarten one day and some kid in this small town, his mother told him, you're going to school with that little boy that whose dad is in jail and the kid blurts that out, as if that's not gonna happen. Either. Right, yes, yeah, true, yes. So um, I wondered uh, if you could share a little bit about, um, so we have, you know, a series of different children's stories is, you know, what this is comprised of. Uh, we are gonna play one further towards the end of the podcast, um, but, um, 
we we talked about Maddie already a little bit. Uh, did you want to say anything more about her? No, she just that story just just grabbed my heart, and it it wasn't a one-off story. Yes, it came up in in the groups that I did with moms over and over and over again. So I think it's an important one. Yes. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.